getting a puppy. <laughs> and so we start talking and um, she's just become a good friend. Yeah, the rest is history. How interesting. Yeah. I, I, I never would have anticipated it had to do with uh, training a dog and going to mass. How interesting. Yeah. So uh, tell us about your background. Uh, did you grow up Catholic? How you kind of got into the, the, the interest in, I guess, kind of occupational therapy in the first place. A little bit about, about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a cradle Catholic. I was born in St. Louis, middle of three kids, um, and lived, grew up mostly in Kansas, um, was headed to the University of Kansas to get a business degree, and then kind of my junior year took a left turn and wanted to do something else that would allow me to have, um, to a more flexible work schedule to, you know, be home with kids or, and I didn't have any idea what what that would look like. Mm -hmm. I just knew that, um, I did not want to work, you know, 50 hours a week in some, um, business capacity. So, um, I'd been babysitting, nannying, had always had a great love for kids. I, um, started a little preschool in my basement when I was in probably middle school and went around the neighborhood collecting everybody's kids, and <laughs> came up with activities and, um, games and things like that. So have always had a lifelong love for young kids. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, how about occupational therapy in, in Jen? That then this is what you thought that, uh, would be outside yes. the 50 hour a week box. Yes. And did you always want to own your own, own practice, your own business? Um, I, I would say no, that I didn't know that I wanted to own my own practice, but the more I looked into what fields felt right to me, um, physical therapy, I knew that if I did something medical, I could have flexibility in the schedule. And occupational therapy had lots of attractive things. It's lots of people who are out-of-the-box thinkers. And so occupation doesn't mean occupation as in job that that brings in revenue. Occupation actually means any activity or task that has meaning or value to someone. Mm -hmm. So I literally can help anybody with anything that has value and meaning to them. Is it a five-year-old tying their shoe? Is it an 80-year-old woman who's had a stroke who wants to hold her own fork? Is it a football player who's injured his hand and wants to be able to throw the, the football again? So... OTs are working across the ages, all kinds of different capacities. Mm -hmm. But for me, because I love kids and have my own kids, it was the place where it brought me the most joy. I always had families, moms come up and say, what are you doing? How do you do that? Why do your kids act this way? This looks different to me. So I'm always consulting and helping Um while raising my own kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you get some real life experience, as you mentioned, uh, on the yes. website as well. So is uh, occupational therapy always physical challenges or is there any kind of psychology or, or mental aspect there to it is, as well? There is, yes. There's definitely a mental aspect to it, which is why it was attractive to me also over, I would say, physical therapy. So I have, you know, education based on the brain. I dissected the entire body and it's understanding that brain body connection and so of course that ties into our catholic faith in that we are you know body mind soul composite we are all of it together mm-hmm. and um a lot of parenting professionals will kind of separate it out like this is a mind thing or this is a body thing i'm like no this is a complete package here so the mind 
absolutely is a part that I look at too. Yeah. As you, this is going to be a very general question, but as you look at the overall kind of landscape, especially, I think you probably work more with moms than dads, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, but well, how, how are, how are people doing <laughs> these days? It seems like life moves so fast. There's so much going on. A lot of women are working, raising kids. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a challenging time, isn't it? It's a very challenging time. I would say overall, we are not doing well. So moms are busier than ever and they're less connected to their kids. Kids are, all kids, um, are really hurting, you know, depression, mental issues. Um, I was at a, a drug talk on fentanyl last week. So it's, yes, it's a very hard time right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that parents need to pull out of the busy and the noise and get back to understanding the uniqueness of their child, what their values are for their family and how they function best and be okay setting a boundary of, you know what, we really can't do two activities for each of our kids. Mm -hmm. We don't function well that way. We have to do what works for us. And a lot of parents don't have the, the strength to do that. And also we see on our phone, right, we have so much information, too much information about what to do and how it should look. And this looks perfect on so-and-so's Instagram. My parenting must be terrible. What's wrong with me? There's shame. There's guilt that parents feel. Because um, you know, everybody presents themselves in the mm -hmm. positive on social media. Yeah. And you, uh, yeah, I, I got a friend that's with his wife over in Europe right now, right. running around Italy. And I'm like, gosh, why can't I take my wife to Italy? I right. want to go to Italy. Right. <laughs> it's always, yeah, yes. people are putting their best out there and it makes uh, you kind of, yeah, you're trying to keep yeah. up with everybody else, right? And, right. But it's not reality because yeah. there are moments of, the good stuff, but there's a lot of messy stuff in between. <laughs> and so the messy stuff is what I typically help parents kind of navigate mm -hmm. and understand that that's just the normal human condition. Yeah. And um, they're normally every parent that I help, every child, even if that child is challenged or has special needs, they have so much um, good stuff that they're doing. So many positive attributes that are working for them. I just help point that out. Yeah. Uh, let me ask about social media. I think this is something that every parent of any kid probably nowadays uh, from about eight up is going to have to address. And there are people like Dr. Ray Grendy on Catholic Radio who takes a very hard stand on they shouldn't have it, you know. Uh, to some people, just unfettered access. And if, you know, if I take it away, they're going to hate me and, uh, you know, they're going to be isolated. And, and I know I've got, I've got two teenage daughters. It's, it's a really tough decision. Do you, do, what, what are your thoughts on that? So I think, again, it goes back to understanding your family, what your family needs. So I don't take a hard stance on it. I, I do think it needs to be the minimal amount. And I think every child who is going to get a phone, um, seventh grade, eighth grade, whatever that 
age is for you that works for your family, do a contract. I recommend a cell phone contract with a child who can read and sign their name that says, you don't own this phone, this won't be in your bedroom, whatever the rules are. And I don't recommend not giving them a phone until their high school or college because I want kids and parents to work together to use it well. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of parents who are scared of a phone. They come to me with this fear that if they give their child the phone, it's going to, you know, unleash something. Yeah. And as a parent, we want to not live in fear. We want to be out in front of our kids knowing, okay, I can do this. I can guide them. I have control of their phone. So for every parent, you need to have their passcode. You need to be checking and checking through the history. You need to decide what are the parameters. And there are certain um, phones that you can buy that have different controls that are better than others. And so there's, again, lots of different options to just gradually get to a stage of leading kids to, to use it well. And so I don't want to, again, throw them to the wolves when they're Mm -hmm. in college and say, here's your phone. No, I want to have parameters. And at the end of the day, here's your contract. I pay for it. So I can pull that phone based on, you know, any of the rules that you've broken. But the contract gives clarity. So nobody's forgotten what the rules are. Like, oh, I forgot that I was supposed to give you the passcode. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. It says right here in writing. Yeah. So it just makes it clear and manageable. And then, you know, I've had with my kids so many discussions. Okay, I was reading your text, Will, and, you know, this language wasn't okay. This, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, it's, it's kind of with grace and space that you're, you're helping kids who they don't have a fully formed brain. They don't have a fully formed body. So their judgment is not going to be like you or mine. And so being understanding, but saying, Hey, let's do this differently. Here's how you could address this. Lots of different things. Yes. My guest is Kelly Shoup. She is a pediatric occupational therapist. I didn't ask you your parish. Are you um, in the in the Dallas Diocese? Yes, St. Rita. St. Rita. Okay. I should have asked you. Mother yeah. of three teenagers. Uh, her website, kellykshoup.com, kellykshoup, S-H-O-U-P.com, and uh, also a Catholic uh, parenting coach. And we can talk more about that in a second. Let's bring in uh, the Catholic faith. How is that incorporated into your work as an occupational therapist and also as a, uh, a parenting coach? You know, it's, it's the foundation of who I am. So over the years, I've had so many moms with um, issues in their family, and they'll say, how can you be so calm about this? Or how can you have this interesting idea? And I, I don't think it comes from me. I think it's from the Holy Spirit. It's about my early morning prayer and being intentional about being open to um, what this particular family needs. And so um, I have a lot of Christian families that find me, but a lot of families who come to me and want, you know, this is a problem or how do I deal with this? And I share spiritual tools, Mm -hmm. you know. So if you have a child who is high school and college age, This is a child who's getting ready, if they haven't left already, to be independent. 
God actually physically turns off their ears so they don't hear you as well Mm -hmm. because they're getting ready to go be independent. So developmentally, that's what's going to happen. So if I'm talking, you know, constantly to them about do your college apps and, you know, pick up your (laughs) socks and clean your bedroom and all this stuff, they don't hear. So um, I have to come up with other ways. So a lot of times I'll tell parents, text them. Leave them a note, a written note on their door, because they'll read that. But um, you can be very effective with prayer, with fasting, uh, saying the rosary. You know, lots of different ways that we can have more impact on our kids in a spiritual way. Yeah. I noticed on the the information you sent, you gave me that there's theology of the body incorporated mm-hmm. into your practice. Are you trained in theology of the body or how do, how does that kind of work into your your work as an occupational therapist? So, I'm not officially trained in theology of the body. I would love to have more time to delve into that, but I have done courses and been exposed to it over many years, but it's understanding again just the every cell in our bodies is made by God for a particular purpose. And so the cells in a male's eyes are different than in a woman's. And so, you know, if a mom says, Oh my goodness, my son can never see his football gear that's right mm-hmm. in front of him. Well, his eyes see differently than a mom's do. And so it's bringing out also, you know, that what, what does love look like? What is self gift? It's, it's all of that. That um, is so important to just in practical, realistic, in a person's home and interaction with their kids. I want to bring it up. I want parents to know this is it. This is living in action theology of the body in your home yes yeah that though that body of teaching was a great gift uh, to the church uh, from saint john paul ii for sure healing parental wounds uh this is tough because we're all walking wounded we're all (laughs) hurt ourselves and so it's the wounded trying to help the wounded uh well what uh can you say about that Uh, realizing that we're wounded as we try to to help our children and, and and our friends and other people Yeah, just um, self-awareness. And so one of the areas that I really look at with kids and with parents is the sensory system. And that's how um, each human takes in through their senses the reality of the environment they're in through hearing, through touch, through taste, through smell. And every human I know has sensitivities in one of their senses. And a lot of times this is a place that they could have been wounded. If, um, let's say, I'm very hearing sensitive. And so if I'm in a noisy gym or if I'm in, um, you know, a busy airport, it's exhausting to my brain Mm -hmm. because I can't filter out the different sounds. But where it shows up in a wound is if as a child, my parents were constantly telling me, you know, oh, you're so, you know, you weren't listening, or why are you so disagreeable every time we take you to a basketball game? Then that would land on me and, you know, could be a scar or a wound, and I could be carrying that around into my parenting when I'm an adult. And 
I still have my hearing sensitivity, but it's understanding what some of those sensitivities are, understanding that God gave us what he gave us. We're unique, each of us, but also similar. So, you know, we all have hearts, we all have muscles, we all have the senses that we use. But when families, moms can understand their sensory profile, also for their kids, then there's some understanding of, okay, this could be a time where I could be grumpier than normal. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm going to take my child into this certain situation, let's say I'm going to take them to the beach, and it's a child who's tactile sensitive, which means touching stuff can be triggering to them. So they don't like the feel of sand on their beach mm-hmm. or on their toes, or they don't like um, touching sand. It doesn't mean they, they're trying to be a bad kid. It doesn't mean they're trying to be difficult. It just means they have a need that's different than parent, mom, the rest of the family. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Kelly Shoup is a pediatric occupational therapist. Her website, kellykshoup.com kellykshoup.com and in the time that we have remaining I want to talk about some of the services that you provide and I see it's one-on-one private sessions Uh, you will go out and speak at engagements schools churches and also you have a monthly Catholic parenting uh, I guess uh, get together. So why don't we do them in reverse order? So uh, once a month you get together right, online for a parenting uh, yeah, meeting so or I, tell us about that. Yeah. So I have an online um, monthly membership where parents can join. We do a group coaching session once a week and inside the portal of this monthly membership, moms have access to spiritual tools, different prayers. Um, there are games activities that are good for um, connecting with your kids. I also have different courses that I have recorded, ones on picky eating, ones on soothing separation anxiety with kids. A lot of times, you know, if you're um, taking your three-year-old and you want to leave him in the nursery while you go into church, why is my kid clinging to me? How could I make this easier? Um, Self-regulation is another course where how to you know, we help kids regulate and stay calm. What do we need to do to have them sit and behave during Mass? That might look like running around the church three times before we even go in. Mm-hmm. So it's helping just give simple, again, easy, applicable um, ideas that parents can use every day to make it more pain-free and less stressful. And, and I think you told me before we started, you have people around the world that, that join in on yes, this, right? Uh, yeah. I think you said Sweden and different countries. Yes, yeah. That must add a lot to it to get yeah. different perspectives from different countries. How yes. interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. It's interesting because even though people are from all over the world, these moms are dealing with all of the same mm-hmm. feelings yeah. of I'm not doing enough. They know obviously this, this job matters, raising kids well, and they feel guilt I'm not, you know, I didn't do this right or I yelled at my kid and I'm like, that's okay, right? We yeah. know the human condition is broken and we know that we are we are that way because God made us that way so we would cling to him and we would need him to get through 
each of our days. It reminds me of what Socrates said, know thyself. For sure. <laughs> it's uh, very important, yes. isn't it, to know ourselves. Yes. Um, okay, speaking engagements at schools and churches, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of self-explanatory. If uh, people would like you to come out and speak about a variety of topics, what's the number one topic people want to, if you are invited to a women's group or mom's group, or what, what do they typically want you to talk about? A lot of times it's discipline. And the other one is just, um, I talk to moms groups about understanding that the fullness of the Catholic faith actually parallels the parenting experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, those I'm, are the two topics. I'm curious, uh, if your kids were here, what would they say about mom being a parenting coach? Does, uh, does, does that, do they think it's funny? Does it put pressure on them? Like they got to be the perfect kids because mom talks about this all the time? Or what would they say? No, I think that they've, they've known for a long time that I parent differently than a lot of parents. Um, they, they do laugh about it. And I also am the first to admit that I'm, when I'm speaking to another family, I'm not in that family, so I'm more neutral. But with my kids, right, I'm, I'm more emotionally tied, so I'm easier to be triggered. It, I'm, I'm more emotional with yeah, them. And yeah. so I, I, I usually have to apologize to my kids at least once a day <laughs> for something I've missed, something, you know, yeah. I can be short with them. But um, once you understand the the grace that God gives us, and that at the end of the day, it all goes back to love. And so it starts with love, and I parents have to invest and be intentional about connecting with their kids. Mm-hmm. And I have been always that way with my kids. But So when you connect, then you can direct, then you can correct. And so you have to have that connection first. And yeah. what does that look like? And it can be, you know, a quick eye contact. It can be a quick note that you leave. Like there's so many different ways, but I would say my kids know that I'm connected to them, but they, they give me a hard time. They make fun of me. They help me with my social media posts and what I love about they're seeing me do this business and they're seeing me fail and make mistakes and keep trying and seeing me, you know, um, working hard for the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah. We are unfortunately out of time. Uh, Kelly also offers one-on-one private sessions. Don't have time to talk about that, but uh, you can find all this information on her website that I've mentioned several times, kellykshoop.com, K-E-L-L-Y, the letter K, and then S-H-O-U-P.com, occupational therapist and Catholic parenting coach, and uh, really enjoyed speaking with you. I wish we you had too. more time. Thank you. Uh, but thank you very much uh, for coming in, and thanks again to Mary Sladek for recommending uh, this interview. Thanks to Cecil Anderson, and thank you for listening. If you have suggestions for future interviews, please email me directly, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. God bless you. If you're over 18, baptized, received First Communion, and are ready to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation, you can register for Fall Adult Confirmation classes at St. Joseph Parish in Richardson. Classes start on Friday, October 20th from 7 p.m. You'll prepare to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation at the 5 p.m. Vigil Mass on November 25th. For more information, contact Alfredo at alfredors at stjosephcc.net.
Are you burdened by mortgage debt, facing foreclosure, or dealing with tax liens? Perhaps you've inherited a property you're not sure how to manage. Danny McDonald & Sons at Omnia House Buyers, a proud new sponsor of KATH 910 AM, can help. They offer home buying service for anyone in need of assistance. For more information, you can visit their website at omniahousebuyers.com or you can reach out to Danny and his team by phone at 1-940-222-5896. That's 1-940-222-5896. Welcome to the interview of the week here on KTH 910 AM, Guadalupe Radio Network. Glad you're with us. And uh, I've been really excited about this interview for quite some time ever since it got booked because uh, like many of you uh, months ago when this movie Nefarious came out, uh, you went and saw it and you were blown away. And it was uh, really one of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time. And uh, people sometimes forget that movies are often and normally based on books. And uh, Nefarious uh, was based on a book and it was called A Nefarious Plot. And the author of that book is my guest for this interview. His name is Steve Deese. And the occasion for uh, doing the interview now is not only the book of the movie, but he is coming into Dallas to be the keynote speaker at the Vitae Foundation's Dallas Pro-Life Dinner. It's Thursday, October 19th, uh, beginning at 6 o'clock with registration, 7 to 9 for a dinner. And um, you can get tickets at vitaefoundation.org slash events and find out about it. But a little bit more about Steve, and then we'll get right to the conversation with him. He is a best-selling author, movie producer, podcaster, and most importantly, a husband and father. His pro-life values stem from being born to an unmarried 14-year-old who contemplated abortion but ultimately chose life. Uh, his book, as I mentioned, A Nefarious Plot, about a demonic takeover of America inspired the 2023 movie called Nefarious. Uh, Steve Deese, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Nice to talk with you. You bet, brother. Thank you very much. All right. So, gosh, where do I begin? Um, let's talk about Vitae Foundation first. Uh, how did you get affiliated with them? And uh, you must have a lot of respect for that organization. I do. I, actually, I had um, a, a, a prominent family, the Huffines in your area, uh, reach out to me. Uh, they, uh, listen and are big fans of the podcast I do for the blaze. They've heard me speak about, uh, the pro-life cause and mission uh, on my show pretty frequently, given both, uh, my personal experience and testimony, as you pointed out, as well as just my own, uh, con- biblical conviction on the issue as a, as a Christian. And, you know, they were like, we'd love to have you guys, have you come down and keynote an event for us. And we were able to make it work. And, uh, Luckily, I'm very familiar with Dallas. The Blaze is there, so I go down back and forth several times a year uh, from where I live in Des Moines uh, to the DFW area there, and I was happy to do it, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, very nice. When was the book written? So I wrote the book. It was published in the in March of uh, 2016, and uh, and the book was the the the, the manuscript was completed in uh, the summer of 2015, and I mean I, I had. had you know, my career was really in its nascent stages at that moment. And uh, I had my very first nationally syndicated radio show, but it was pretty modest compared to the size of show that uh, God's blessed me with now. And um, I, I got the idea uh, for the book in the shower the first time I visited Washington, D.C., because there's no better place to be inspired about a demonic takeover of America <laughs> than Washington, D.C. So true. And, uh, you know, I, I spent the next year writing the book. That's the longest it's ever taken me to write any of my 11 books. And it's because uh, I was really uncomfortable 
being in the shoes of the demon I was channeling, uh, the character I created. And so I would, I would take weeks, if not months, to stay away from it just to kind of spiritually recharge. I mean, when you, when you, when you, you know, look into the mouth of madness long enough, my friend, it starts looking back at you. you oh, yeah. Saying. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I, we wrote the book. I, it was, you know, we sold four or 5,000 copies, which, you know, 98% of books released every year won't even do that. And uh, I thought I was done with the with with it. I didn't. I even joked in the preface, the only part of the book I wrote my own voice, that I wasn't going to tell the story of how I came upon this demonic manuscript. And who knows, one day if we ever sell the movie rights to this, that's how we'll translate this book into a film. Well, lo and behold, you know, it was a joke when I wrote that in 2015. Well, lo and behold, that ended up in being the exact story in the movie that was released here in 2023. The the movie tells the story of the origin of the book, and it takes you right up to the release of the book. Yeah. So you, I guess, and even though you were somewhat joking, you must have at least, I guess, perhaps every writer dreams of his book becoming a, a movie. Did Did you think it was uh, like this is the kind of thing that should be turned into a movie, or was it totally just an offhand joke in the preface? Complete joke. Um, of course, you dream about writing a book that you t- that is turned into a movie, you just don't think it's going to be a book that's a 242-page rant by a demon, right? Yeah. I mean, you, can't, you can't do a movie where the singular character just is just, you know, diatribing at you for an hour and a half. Right. You know, and so what was, what was going to be in the very first time, you know, when Believe Entertainment, when they bought the movie rights, uh, they really wanted the character I had created. And then, you know, we were going to figure out later how to turn that, uh, you know, what was going to be the MacGuffin or the plot driver for a film and when we first started storyboarding the movie in june of 2020 we that was the first thing we had to tackle and uh one of our directors writers uh chuck constantly like just read the preface out loud and said why don't we just do that just just tell the origin instead of an adaptation let's write a prequel so instead of uh you know an adaptation it's an inspiration here's where this book came from and we thought that's a brilliant idea and things just kind of took off from there. So is the the dialogue from the movie, you know, taken in part? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Oh, yeah. There are lots of direct lines from the book uh, in dialogue form that are taken into the movie. Yeah. Absolute, many, several direct quotes, you bet. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I saw the movie, I talk, took my wife and my 18-year-old daughter, and we all just were blown away by it. No, and, thank you. And I... <laughs> I, I, I could, I, I, did, I walked away thinking that the actor, you know, should get an Academy Award. He probably won't because of the subject matter. But uh, if it was a secular movie, that, 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 yeah, that guy would have gotten a, an Academy Award. I mean, it, it, both, it, both actors were outstanding, weren't they? They were. Um, you know, when, um, when I, I got a chance, and how we got our movie in the theaters is there is a. Uh, um, kind of a clandestine, well-connected, spirit-filled believer um, up pretty high up in, in Hollywood, in the theater industry. And over the years, many years of his career, he's, he's you know, put his thumb on the scale to help movies with uh, a Christian message that he thought were worthy of mainstream distribution and success. And, for example, one of the, one of the movies that he helped was Mel Gibson's The Passion. And through the grapevine, he found out about uh, our film and uh, reached out to me and invited me to his home to screen it to him. 
and to see what he thought. And uh, one of the first things he said to me after he watched the film is he said, I've, I've, you know, I've known Anthony Hopkins for many years. I think he's the greatest actor of my lifetime. What I just saw from Sean Patrick Flannery is Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs caliber of performance. And if, if this was from the other side's worldview, he'd absolutely be nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, yeah, so I, 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 maybe I missed it, but you mentioned you wrote the book 2016 and then they started the process of the movie, I think you said 2020. What was the mm-hmm. catalyst? Who, who read it? Who, who came to you and said, hey, we got to make this into a movie? Who was it? So six months after the book was released, I got a call one day uh, from a guy that I work with now, but I did not know him at the time, Glenn Beck. Yeah. And he called me out of the blue and said, hey, man, a mutual friend gave me your book, and it blew my mind. And, I mean, I thought it was C.S. Lewis good, and I'd love to have you on the show to talk about it. And, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted 10 million listeners to hear about this book I wrote, but I decided to give it a shot, you know. And so uh, I I was on his show that Friday, and driving around in Burbank, California, is uh, was a producer named uh, Chris Jones. And he had just hooked up. He had worked with Pure Flicks, and he had just hooked up with two of Pure Flix top writers, Chuck Consulman and Carrie Solomon, and they had written the studio's breakthrough hit, God's Not Dead, for example. Mm-hmm. And they were getting set to form their own, break out on their own with their own production company. They, they wanted to direct movies now, and they were hoping to do a little bit more grittier fare, and they were getting ready to actually begin pre-production on their first feature film, Unplanned, based on Abby Johnson's memoir of her time at Planned Parenthood. Yes. And so they were, you know, Chris was kind of on the lookout for what their next movie might be if this one was a success. And he was, he's listening to me do this interview with Glenn Beck and he gets to, he, you know, he's like, this book sounds amazing. So he, so he gets to the office, he orders it on Kindle and reads it in one sitting before the other guys get into work that after that, that day. And when they showed up, he's like, all right, I know, I know we're just getting to work on Unplanned, but I think I've got our next movie. So I want you to just give me a page number any page number, one through 242. Just give me a random page number and I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read to you that page. And so one of the guys gives him a page number and he starts reading what I wrote on that, on that page. And at the end, they looked at each other and said, that's a movie. Mm. And so that night, you know, my wife is actually at a church retreat. And so I'm a home alone with our kids. They were all still pretty young at this time. And, uh, I put them to bed. I go down to the man cave, man, to fire up the Madden and just kind of unwind for the night. And I get this alert on my phone and it says, I've got an email. And I looked at it and it said, guy says, Hey, my name's Carrie Solomon. And uh, I want to, you know, we want to buy the movie rights to your book. You know, I thought, you know, Nigerian princes have different names than I remembered. I thought it was a scam. (laughs) So I, uh, I deleted the email and went back to playing Madden and that, little voice in the back of your head was like, you know, eh, you might want to reconsider that decision. And so I went and looked them up on IMDb to see, are these guys even real? And, you know, there they are, you know, at the um, movie guide awards for God's not dead. And uh, what if, you know, with Kevin Sorbo and I'm like, yeah, these guys are real, you know? And so I reached back out to them. We, we met and talked for the first time that week, um, went back and forth, negotiated, you know, like you do. And, we ended up uh, signing the deal in November of 2015, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
Wow. Wow. It took a full eight years. Of course, you had to get through COVID and a lot of things uh, between right. then and now. And, um, you know, one of the, the really cool things is the the cultural issues of uh, abortion and euthanasia. And, you know, there's a lot, you know, not that I need to tell you that is incorporated into the script, but uh, but but it's done in, in a way that isn't real preachy. But I think it really makes a connection between these life and death issues and the you know, the, the spirituality and the, the, the demons. And so, um, that, that was that one of your intentions is to yes. kind, kind, yeah, kind of, kind of make that, make that connection between demonic activity and the things that much of our culture is saying is okay. Yes. I, I think the, and I think the last few years, faith-based filmmaking has improved particularly by leaps and bounds. And I think this year, our movie sound of freedom, the G- Jesus revolution, uh, the, the Phil Robertson movie that's coming out this weekend, I had a chance to watch a screener of it the other day. It's These are all very well done, faith-based, Bible-affirming, but mature level, you know, highly high levels of production dramas. And I think we're we're really improving as an industry and giving our, ourselves permission to tell grittier and, and less, um, you know, frankly, you know, naive uh, stories. But the, the, one of the other mistakes that we made in the past is we, there's a difference between being preachy and prophetic. And when, you're, when you get preachy, when you, when you think there's a formula you have to pursue and that you've got to check certain boxes and certain things must be done. Like my contract literally for the movie said no cheesy conversion scenes. None. <laughs> okay? and, 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 and we kind of threw all those, you know, if you've seen it and you've seen our movie, all your traditional Christian faith-based formulas, we threw them all out the window. Didn't do any of them. Yeah. And, and we went instead for being prophetic, meaning we're just going to let the spirit that God put in us and the word of God that we all know, we're just going to tell the best story we can. And because of who we are as believers, what we believe will just come out on its own. We don't have to check boxes. We don't have to look for places to insert things. And in fact, as we went through the storyboarding process, each of us were tempted to say, oh, we've definitely got to put that in there. Or we've definitely got to say that or put that. And then the rest of the room would kind of say, push back and say, okay, is that part of the story? Or is that like, you know, something that we need to put in there to check a box ideologically? And that's how you avoid heavy handed storytelling. I think what's kind of ironic right now in the movie industry and why a lot of the content they do frankly sucks is now the other side is, is really starting to make the mistake that I think Christian and conservative storytellers made for so many years. Now they're looking for ways to purposefully interject woke, rainbow, um, you know, intersectionality, spirit of the age, talking points, as, as rather than telling good stories. They used to be great propagandists in that they would tell great stories, and it was just so it just so happened to be fused with whatever their talking points or beliefs were, and so they could subtly get those into your subconscious. And now. They're being so over the top, overt with it, that it's cringy. Yeah, and and, and so I think they've the, the other side has kind of switched spots with us now. We're, we're kind of learning how to tell just good stories, and they're they've kind of forgotten how to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm I'm glad we're uh, you know 
uh, taking the edge on, on that in that battle there. Steve Deese is my guest. He is the best-selling author of A Nefarious Plot. And this is the book, as he has said, that is the inspiration uh, and uh, the subject matter of the movie Nefarious that came out earlier this year, which was just uh, absolutely outstanding. Uh, Steve is going to be the keynote speaker at the Vitae Foundation Dallas Pro-Life Dinner, Thursday, October 19th. It's going to be at the Northwood Club on Alpha Road in Dallas. If you want to get tickets, uh, they I believe they're still available, vitaefoundation.org slash events. And um, Steve, when uh, I, I got to ask, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, uh, screw tape letters or uh, Paradise Lost or some of these other books where, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of get the devil's perspective. Uh, are these books that you, uh, that inspired you or that you used or, or uh, tell me what, what, what were the inspirations uh, li- li- from a, a literature standpoint? Absolutely. In fact, you, you just named two of them. So you're very astute. Um, I wrote Nefarious Plot to be a direct homage slash sequel, you know, unofficial sequel to a screw tape letters, meaning that um, I borrowed from Lewis's style, albeit in my own voice and my own. St- I'm certainly going to be a, I'm, he's going to be more winsome. And I'm going to be more provocative. Yeah. OK, so my demon is not as funny uh, as uh, as Uncle Screwtape is. OK, and you're not by the end of nefarious plot. You're not calling him uncle anything. You're crying, uncle. OK, <laughs> um, but um, and, but I, I, I also borrowed in the book from Paradise Lost in that. I thought there needed to be some exposition. I, I, I needed to answer some questions that unbelievers would have. Stuff like, if, if everybody's read the end of the Bible and the devil knows he loses, why does he keep fighting? I needed to directly answer some of these questions. And I think Paradise Lost, he puts some of that exposition in there artistically and does so in a way that isn't sacrilegious or it may not necessarily be exactly what occurred in those moments in biblical or in prophetic history that we don't know uh, that God didn't put in his word, but it doesn't feel like it's meant to detract from it or to deter the core message of the Bible. And so I tried to channel that the best that I could and in, in trying to fill in some of those gaps so that un, when unbelievers read it, it would still make narrative sense to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, th- thanks for letting us know about those two inspirations. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, I really want to make a message about these cultural issues. I've read these other books by these great authors, but you, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, the, the pain of getting into the mind of a demon um, was uh, you must have had to have really had a, a pretty serious prayer life during that time. Uh, tell, tell us about some of that that tension, and you you mentioned it before, but a little bit more about what it was like to uh, that writing process. Must have been pretty intense. It was. Um, I was. Um, I mentioned earlier. I was in D.C. I was actually in the shower getting ready to do some publicity for my first wide release release book. And in the shower, you know, uh, this this popped into my head out of nowhere. This book is dedicated to all the useful idiots out there, especially those of you who had no idea that you were being used all this time. For you proved to be the most useful idiots of them all, nefarious. <laughs> I thought that's, that's a weird thing to just think, you know. And so I, I get back to my room that night and I start playing around with it. And the next thing I know, I've written like an introduction to who this character is and what his mission is. And I, in my mind's eye, I kind of, fashioned him as an amalgamation of J.R. Ewing and Heath Ledger's Joker. And, um, and before I went any further, I called, I called two different pastor friends of mine who have some serious theological credentials. And I, I told them, Hey, 
you know, I just want to read something to you. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm just going to read it to you so that you give me, have no expectations and give me your visceral, reflexive, immediate reaction to what I just sent, what I just read to you. And so I, I read each of them, the introductions that I wrote that night in DC, they were both blown away and said, we think you may really have something prophetically powerful here. And, uh, um, that's when I decided to go ahead and see if we could carry this narrative all the way. And um, I thought the best thing to do was to be specific. And so in the book, the enemy names names. He, he cites specific people, movements, moments in history. He connects dots exactly how the United States of America was deconstructed demonically. Yes. And um, and I thought by doing it that way, it would it would it would it would it would kind of keep separation between, you know, me and him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, being a a Catholic radio station, uh, I was intrigued by the scene when the Catholic priest comes in. Mm -hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, Nefarious initially has one reaction and then it's almost like he realized, well, this guy, this guy isn't going to cause me any opposition. Tell, tell us, was that in your book, that part? And uh, tell us about that scene. So I love it when people tell me how much they love that scene, because that's one of the, that might be the biggest single contribution that I made to our script is, I mean, Carrie and Chuck, who are both very devout Catholics, wrote an incredible script incredible script and um and when we were storyboarding we we had the whole story laid out the three murders everything we had it all laid out but when we got done i thought at the end you know i think we have our people are when they come to see this movie they're going to recognize they have chaplains and things that move at the at at at, uh, prisons and they're going to ask you know how do you how do we make a, a movie about demonic possession but the church is never involved and I said, we need to address this up front before we get into the three murders. And I, I suggested, see, he's actually not a Catholic priest. He's actually a Unitarian priest. Oh, okay. And, and that's why he's wearing the Unitarian scarf. And so I, I said, we should have him come, have, a, have a guy come in, complete, total, heterodox, heretic, soft-headed, wit-woke. And, but before he shows up, that's the one time in the movie that nefarious feels like he's on his heels, like he's lost control, like he's doomed. Because I, we wanted our people to see what, what, what the reaction is supposed to be when evil thinks the church walks into the room. Yeah, yes. And, and then when, the, when, when, he, when he sees the current state of the church embodied by this woke Unitarian poser, then he knows, well, then, then I, we wanted the church to see the reaction that evil actually has when we walk into a room. It's not threatened. The salt has lost its savor. And, you know, the whole movie is a provocation. The whole movie is. Most of the time it is provoking the unbeliever to consider the existence of evil, to, to, to do this through Jordan Belfi's character, James Martin, that you are not the people we've been waiting for. You haven't cracked the code. You're not the smartest generation ever. In fact, you're fools. All right, because you are you have turned your you've turned away from the most fundamental truths of the universe and are causing destruction because of that. But there are a few moments where the church is provoked. And right after and that priest scene is one of them. And then right after the priest scene, when when uh, James 
says to says to Nefarious, I didn't know this was a fight. And Nefarious says, that's why you're losing. <laughs> that is aimed directly at the <laughs> Yeah. Amen. Uh, just about out of time, I, I got to ask you, I think I probably can assume the answer to this, but I'm just curious because a lot of people have asked me this. There is a notorious... Uh, very left-leaning priest in the Catholic Church named Father James Martin. Uh, and since I'm thinking since you wrote this so many years ago, that's a coincidence, right? Um, or is that not? Um, uh, uh, my middle name is James, and Chuck, one of our directors, his middle name is Martin. Ah, and that's where it came from. So it has sure. nothing, nothing to do with Father James Martin. You bet. We can go with that. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Steve, thanks so much. I, I... Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth, and North Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone.